Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. After a really, really quiet spring and summer, the fall art season has finally arrived. Museums, galleries, and dealerships are reopening around much of the country, in careful and limited ways, of course. And that means that starting in a week or two, we'll be back to featuring artists on the program at something like the usual rate. I can't wait. This week, we'll kick off the fall with probably the most anticipated book of the fall season, Janice A. Tomlinson's new Goya biography, which is titled Goya, A Portrait of the Artist. Published by Princeton University Press, it is just the second English-language biography of Goya. While Robert Hughes's 2003 bio was written from a critical point of view and told the story of Goya and his Spain mostly through Goya's work, Tomlinson emphasizes the documentation that reveals Goya's life, the centrality of the Spanish court to his life and work, and investigates Goya's most important friendships and relationships. Goya, a portrait of the artist, is available through Amazon and IndieBound for $35. We'll have links on manpodcast.com. On the second segment, Mary Beebe joins me to discuss Landmark's sculpture commissions for the Stewart Collection at the University of California, San Diego, which is just out from University of California Press. Finally, if you enjoy the show, please give us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Those ratings are a big deal in helping new listeners find our program. Janice Tomlinson, after the break. Explore art with Getty. Visit our online exhibition, Bauhaus, Building the New Artist, winner of this year's Muse Award for Best Online Experience. Watch videos about art making, conservation, and art history. Read timely blog posts to boost your knowledge and artistic spirits. Learn to make and explore art from home. And tune into Recording Artists, winner of the 2020 Webby Award for Best Arts and Culture Podcast. Learn more at getty.edu art. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, is temporarily closed for the health and safety of all visitors. Meanwhile, visit the Nasher Museum online to find gems from the museum's archives. Here are special videos, articles, and podcast episodes featuring artists who have visited the museum and whose work is part of our collection. Here, too, are some greatest hits among reviews in the arts press over the past 15 years. Visit nasher.duke.edu. And we're back. Janice Tomlinson, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. Throughout your new book, Goya, A Portrait of the Artist, you point to how central the Spanish court under various monarchs was to Goya and his life, his work, to his eventual prominence, to his success. So in order to understand and kind of lay the ground for Goya's path from when he was in his early 20s in the 1770s, until the Peninsular War in the years around 1810. What do we need to know about the Spanish court and its centrality to any Spanish painter's work and life? The court was really, and the court and the people who were at court, the aristocrats who served the king, were really, apart from the church in Spain, the main patrons of art in Spain. To have to gain a place at court, even a minor rank at court was what every artist aspired to. So, you know, Goya was Goya was very lucky because his brother-in-law was actually a very successful artist at court and his brother-in-law in probably it was uh, invited him to 
early on, you know, assists in painting designs or cartoons for tapestries to be woven by the Royal Tapestry Factory in Madrid. You know, and Goya just stuck to it. When that work ended and when he had a rift with his brother-in-law, he networked, I guess is the best way to say it. He networked with the Minister of State to get an introduction to the king's brother, to then get commissions from major nobles at the court, the Duke and Duchess of Asuna, until he finally got you know, a position as court painter when Carlos IV, Charles IV, came to power in 1789. He actually, after that, he somewhat fell out of the ranks because of an illness around 1793. We don't hear that much of it, but then he reemerges getting work uh, assignments from a very close confidant of the king and queen. And then suddenly the queen is ordering portraits in the late 1790s. And within a year, he is first court painter, which is the absolute highest rank that a painter could achieve. And, I, you know, I, I want to point out that we tend to underplay the importance of the court in Goya's life. Especially because it's not innate, I think, for people outside of Spain to understand what the Spanish court was. But it's also we tend to emphasize works like the etchings of Los Caprichos, the satirical uh, etchings that he published in 1799. And we tend to read these as satires of the court, this, that, and the other. But we really have to watch out for that because we really have to think, ask ourselves, if this artist who worked so hard to get where he was would really take the risk of, you know, satirizing his patrons. And we also have to realize that, you know, within 10 months of publishing Los Caprichos, he was given the position that he had aspired to for the past 25 years as first court painter. So, you know, it's, it's not a simple... Goya enjoyed his work at court. He was a true professional. And he endured at court for that reason. He knew how to survive changing regimes. He knew how to be, in, in short, a courtier with an allegiance to the king, no matter who that king was. The exception, of course, being Joseph Bonaparte, who Napoleon's brother, who was on the Spanish throne from 1808 to 1813. Because Goya, although he probably painted Joseph's portrait, and he certainly painted many of the people at the French court in Madrid. He never accepted a, an official salaried position with that court, and that served him well and made him available to resume his work as court painter when the Spanish monarch was restored to power. We will hit on a number of those events and points and pictures as we go along here. But having introduced the Spanish court, let's go back to the beginning of Goya's career. How did he and his work first come to the attention of the court at Madrid, around Madrid? As I said, it was his brother-in-law, Francisco Bayeu, who probably introduced Goya to court. And how he, became, he came to know Bayeu goes back to his early career in his hometown of Saragossa, which is the capital of the province of Aragon. For years, his years in Saragossa have been treated sort of like a prologue and, you know, before he came to court. But in fact, his early years as a student, possibly as an apprentice, 
and as a painter in Saragossa are really crucial to understanding his early career at court. He evolved, his father was a gilder. He grew up knowing circles of gilders and sculptors and painters. His teacher, the brother of his of Goya's teacher was also a gilder. Goya's father was an executor in the will of that gilder. So there's a, a real network of artists in Saragossa working. There is also new professionalism in Saragossa. In Madrid, I don't want to get too far off track. A, a Royal Academy had been established in Madrid, and there was a group of artists and uh, painters and sculptors who were pushing for the establishment of an academy in Saragossa that would eventually happen in, the, in, in later in the century. So there was a new professionalism about uh, about painting. But Goya, you know, still had to make it in the Academy at Madrid. So he twice in the 1760s, while living in Saragossa, he participated in competitions at the Royal Academy in Madrid. Didn't get very far. In fact, he, he, he wasn't even mentioned. And so by the end of the 1760s, he's on his way to, to Italy. And that is something else, his, his Italian trip, about which we knew very, very little until we discovered in the 1980s came to light something that is called the Italian sketchbook. It was a sketchbook that Goya used probably towards the end of his two-year so, two sojourn in Italy because then he brings it back and he keeps using pages in it up until the 1780s. So this would suggest it's probably the last in a series of small sketchbooks that he had. But what is so marvelous about that sketchbook is that he writes down the cities that he visited. He goes, these are the cities I visited. These are the cities that I only saw from a distance. These are the best cities. So, you know, and he also jots down what works of art he was looking at. So he was clearly, he covered a lot of territory in his two years. He participated in a, a, a competition at the Royal Academy of Parma and obtained, there was no second prize, but he, uh, and it, it, there was no honorable mention, but the reaction of the academics to his, his work suggested that had the person awarded the prize not been a student of a professor at the academy, Goya might have won. And when Goya returned to Saragossa, then he got his first big commission to fresco a vault in the church of El Pilar. It's known that it is dedicated to the Virgin of the Pillar, the patron saint of Saragossa. Then he got another commission for the charter house or the, the church of the Carthusian monastery of Aula Dei, where he painted a series from the love of large oil paintings on fresco of the life of the Virgin. Now, in between these times, Baello was going back and forth to uh, from Madrid. He come and, came and visited, and he undoubtedly saw Goya's works. And it was during one of those visits that he probably brought his, Baello brought his younger sister, and the promise was taken that they would be married in 1773. So they were. So Goya was now married into the family of a court painter. And, you know, who he had met as a student in Saragossa, and that was his entree to court. Before we continue Goya's chronological narrative, let's pause for a moment to talk about Goya and his relationship with churches, on which you spend a lot of time in the book, on, on his relationship with religious painting. I think in the U.S. anyway, because 
the work Goya made for churches mostly cannot travel for the obvious reasons. And most of the paintings that exist here, of course, are on canvas. Americans don't think of Goya as a religious painter. Americans think of him as, as a portraitist who is a portraitist who is a portraitist. How important were religious commissions to him? Did he bring anything particularly fresh or original or a particular point of view to his religious painting? To answer the, the first question first, they were central to his success as a painter in Spain. I don't want to go into all of the commissions that he had, but once he sort of lost this, once he lost the support of Francisco Bayeo, because there was a conflict over a religious commission in Saragossa, he found himself you know, looking for work. And he found it with a religious, com with a commission of paintings for the Church of the Order of Calatrava, where uh, Jovellanos, who is a well-known figure in Spanish Enlightenment, was probably the one who, you know, gave the, or, or influenced Goya getting that commission. Those paintings, the only, there were, there were four paintings. The only painting known now, the only thing known from that remains of that is a small sketch and that is because they those paintings were destroyed in the Peninsular War, that is the war against Napoleon. I always have to go back and forth because the paintings were destroyed also in the Spanish Civil War a century later. Uh, yeah, and then he was in Madrid in 1785, another religious commission, then the Duke and Duchess of Asuna commissioned their portraits in the late 1780s and also commissioned religious paintings of St. Francis Borgia, an ancestor of the family in the cathedral in Valencia. But perhaps, I mean, these are clearly scattered commissions. I mean, one has to travel to Valencia, one has to travel to Seville. But most people who visit Madrid, or I hope most people who visit Madrid and are interested in Goya, always make the journey across town to uh, San Antonio de la Florida, a church dedicated to St. Anthony of Padua, where in a small uh, centrally planned church, uh, he frescoed the dome, the lunettes, the pendentives with just a tour de force. So religious commissions were important to Goya at many times in his life. Did he bring anything particularly fresh or original to his painting for churches or in churches? I think beginning with the images of St. Francis Borgia, there is a naturalism in his imagery of saints. It is as if he is very much humanizing, so showing the saintly miracle as, as a history painting, you know, without an abundance of halos or anything that marking, uh, you know, marking the saints or the miracle or angels. It is shown as a scene that took place. And that is also most apparent in Madrid in his commission for San Antonio de la Florida, where in the dome he shows the saint performing his miracle in the dome. Surrounded and surrounding the circumference of the dome is a balustrade behind which figures that may well be figures from contemporary Madrid with women in mantillas are overlooking the balustrade. So there is this incredible mix of the contemporary, the historical, the miraculous, and the everyday that I think is pretty much unprecedented in, in religious painting. 
One of the things the book does a really fine job of showing is how Goya's professional rise was not linear. It had starts, it had stops, it was enabled by a marriage, it was slowed by a falling out with an in-law, and, 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 and so on. One of the starts comes early on, maybe you might even call it a lucky break, when Goya is led to, or at least allowed to, study Velasquez pretty, pretty early on in his court life, too. How did that encounter with Velasquez's work happen, and what use would Goya make of it? So three years after Goya arrived at court to paint designs for the Royal Tapestry Factory, we find that advertised in the daily newspaper etchings that he has created after the paintings of Velázquez in the Royal Collection. I think the probable inspiration for those was a call by an enlightened writer who was also secretary of the Royal Academy, who said that, you know, the masterpieces of the Spanish royal collection are totally unknown outside of Spain. And, you know, we need to have engravings. We, I mean, we need to have prints made of these so people understand, you know, what is in our royal collection. And so that was one incentive. But there was also another incentive in that same tone because, the writer of the tome, Antonio Ponce, published a letter from the venerated first court painter, Anthony Raphael Mengs, who brought attention to the works of Velázquez as the supreme master of the naturalist style. So I think those two, the invitation to fulfill, you know, a, this call to reproduce works, but also to study a master whose style was one that appealed to Goya and was unknown outside of, of Spain, you know, led him to look at the works of Velázquez very closely. We can only imagine today, I mean, we, we go on our computers and click and there we have in the image of Velázquez, but you know, can you imagine what it was like to go in the royal palace, which as far as I can tell, you know, might have had oil lamps or, or um, you know, candles, and to begin to begin to engage with the works of Velázquez. And, you know, how much did Goya see? You know, what did he do? I think he probably did drawings on site and then and then worked on the plate and then came back and forth. So the fact is, you know, some many writers on those mentioned that, you know, these these aren't, you know, authentic copies and they aren't. They're really mm, interpretations. But in those interpretations, Goya developed, I think, a new appreciation for, you know, the wonders of Velázquez's light and shadow and also the wonders of Velázquez's capturing of expression of people of all, all, all classes. I'm thinking of the etching of the drunkards with, you know, drunkards around the so-called fake Bacchus, who is, is crowning the drunkards, where you have, you know, a rather pudgy comic Bacchus and you have, you know, men just having a good time out in the country. And, you know, so it's, it's those details and that naturalism would become key to Goya's style. And I, I, I really think I think that Velázquez, you know, became the master, one of the major influences in his life. And indeed, his son's biography said that Goya, you know, learned from Velázquez, Rembrandt and nature after that point. One of Goya's 
biggest breaks at court, a, a break, of course, he helps make, comes in 1783 when he makes a portrait of the Count of Florida Blanca. It's a painting now in the collection of the Bank of Spain, which is Spain's central bank. It's kind of an action portrait. It has lots of narrative stuff going on within the portrait. Narrative stuff, technical term. No, no, no. I, I laugh because it's an abundance of narrative. It's as if you know, he finally got this commission and he was going to show Florida, Florida Blanca everything he could do. So he paints Florida Blanca standing in the center of the canvas. Florida Blanca is, is holding a monocle with which he is apparently the, in, inspecting the canvas that Goya, who is standing in the left corner, is proffering him. But to do that, he has also turned away from his work table that is laden with things that he is working on, plus plans for the Aragonese Canal that he patronized. And, you know, the floor is strewn with books, including one by the, uh, the Spanish art theorist Antonio Palomino with a page marked showing that Florida Blanca had been doing his studying. There's another figure behind, and behind that is a portrait on the wall of King Carlos III, who's kind of supervising this whole image in effigy. He's almost making eye contact with Goya, really. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, and it's interesting because actually the idea of the... Artist in the lower left corner sort of proffering his wares is, is actually something that is, is, is borrowed from Goya's earlier tapestry cartoon of a vendor before noble patrons selling wares at the fair of Madrid. So it's clearly establishing Goya, showing that Goya is at court, but he knows his place. You know, he's proffering his work to the minister who, you know, is representative of Carlos III. But, you know, I think that the problem is that Corey's correspondence shows us quite clearly that he was very disappointed. Florida Blanca didn't have very much to say about the portrait. But I think the what, and I suggest that that portrait was a trial run for Goya, because what I think Florida Blanca did do was recommend Goya to the brother of the king, Don Luis, who for reasons I won't go into, lived with his family in exile from the court. For the following summer, Goya was, and for the summers of 1783 and 84, Goya was at their palace in Avila painting portraits of the family. It's, it's a fascinating way for Goya to kind of find his way into the royal family, if you will. And it's propitious in terms of Goya's own development as a painter. You, you note that it's in the mid to late 1780s that Goya's style advances very, very quickly. Kind of maybe the two crowning works of that change are his portrait of, of the next king, Carlos IV, and his queen, Maria Luisa. What changed? What changed in the 1780s that brought his that brought such a rapid evolution in his style. There are, and this I think is what is ever so fascinating about Goya. You know, his handling in, in the change in the 1780s, I think has a lot to do with his handling of the details of the fabrics, etc. And yet by 1792, he does the portrait of Sebastian Martinez, an art collector in Cadiz. 
And it is in that picture where the face has a new new believability that in, and the expression has a new subtlety that we don't see in those earlier portraits where the expressions are still s- somewhat neutral, you know, not not all that easy to visualize, you know, as uh, the expressions are, are simply flatter in, in the 1780s. So he, he makes leaps in his style. And he was I don't think he was learning from anyone, you know. There weren't professors at the academy who taught people to paint like that. You know, was he looking more at paintings in the royal collection? Was he looking more closely at Velasquez? Was he looking more closely at Titian? Was he looking more closely at, you know, the great painters represented? And that's possible, I think. And how they painted. I mean, certainly today, artists will go to to a museum and go to a museum with an artist, and you'll be looking at something, and they'll say, "Did you see how he handled that white?" And and I think Goya had an incredible school. I mean, the the base, you know, we that we know largely from what's in the Prado Museum, but what a school to study from. So you know, and the same thing, you know, the leaps and bounds he made in the 1790s, having you know, having done etchings by Velázquez, and then suddenly. We have Los Caprichos. Uh, I think that is what makes, for me, that's what makes Goya so incredibly fascinating. He just looks around and learns. There there was no one to teach him these things. The the portrait you just mentioned of Sebastian Martinez is, uh, is at the Met. It's one of the two or three great Goya paintings in the United States. It's the, the the jacket, the blue jacket that the sitter is wearing is pretty ridiculous. And one of the things that makes it so noticeable, uh, and it's it's the way Goya handles it with with kind of visual shimmering layers, is the whiteness of of the shirt or scarf that Sebastian Martinez is wearing. The white just pops off the very middle of of the canvas. It is, of course, lead white, which brings me to the impact lead white might have had on Goya's life at almost this moment. Yes, and lead white was essential also to painting uh, for for the grounds of his tapestry cartoons, which are a very expansive, large canvases. You know, that's a lot of lead white that he ordered in, in quantity. And it has been suggested that his ill, that when he, well, in late 1792, was two months in the bed with stomach pains that were just described as colic in, you know, colicos in Spanish by Goya in a letter in January. And then his illness that he suffered, he had traveled in early 1793 to southern Spain and became ill in Seville and then traveled to the home of Sebastián Martínez, whose painting, whose portrait he had painted a year earlier when Sebastián Martínez was in Madrid. And he stayed with Sebastián Martínez as he recuperated. There is certainly an argument to be made for lead poisoning, given the amount of lead weight he used. I know recent, uh, with I was in a conference with a clinician who, who studied this, and she questions that because he went on to live such a long and healthy and active life. And had he suffered that, you know, that doesn't make sense. And she made other arguments against that. So 
And I've always, you know, I think it's very difficult. I mean, you know, doctors today will see someone with an odd illness that they cannot diagnose. So should we say it was lead poisoning? Definitely. Might it have been some strange infection? Might it have been some virus? Might it, who knows? But in the end, uh, you know, the main, he seems to have been recuperated. By the time he returned to Madrid in June, he was walking in around the streets of Madrid. You know, we know he was walking around the streets of Madrid because he advertises the fact that when he was walking from the palace to the Prado, he dropped a snuff box and he was uh, put in an article in the newspaper, you know, lost and found. Let me interrupt for a quick second. You note in the book that one reason he might have lost the snuff box is that it fell out of his pocket and he might not have heard it hit the ground. Exactly. And again, this is something I don't think we think enough about, which is Goya confronting a silent world. You know, what happens when, you know, the hustle and bustle on the streets of Madrid, suddenly you witness it and there's no sound and mouth open and there are no words. And, you know, how do you, what do you start looking at? What do you start paying attention to? And, you know, there are those historians who insist that, oh, Goya, you know, who, I have read that there are those people who say that Goya attended tertulias, which were kind of like the French salon with intellectuals chatting about this, that, and the other. But again, he was deaf. It couldn't have been easy. And indeed, one of the, an art historian, Goya contemporary and collector of Goya's Prince San Bermudez in talking about an altarpiece that Goya would paint late in life in 1818, he mentions how Goya's loss of hearing had really enhanced his powers of observation. Whether or not that's true, it was at least suggested by one of his contemporaries. So, yeah, that deafness, I think, is something that we always have to have in mind and about trying to see. And I think it has something much to do about where his art goes in the 1790s. Let me jump in there. I, I think one of the places you most suggest was impacted by his deafness, the practice most impacted by his deafness, is his printmaking practice. How so? Well, I think to understand Goya's printmaking practice, one has to stay, or te- take a step back in the 1790s and begin to look at the drawings that he starts creating. We don't know exactly what year. But in the early to mid-1790s, and these begin with a small sketchbook, you know, single figures, and then he turns to larger sheets, and art historians, you know, say, some people say it was a book, some people say it was loose sheets, Uh, I don't want to get into that debate here, but he begins just looking at life around him and picking out figures and drawing them, or imagining them. I mean, in the first small sketchbook, there are some fairly erotic drawings of, of naked women on bed, uh, two naked women on a bed together, for example, that I don't think Goya witnessed, but uh, I may be wrong. But this leads him, and again, this is about ob- observing. When you start sketching, you start observing. And you, when you begin to look at everyday figures, Then you begin to look at figures interacting. And this led to the drawings that became first a small sketchbook with one or two figures on a page, then larger drawings that really record couples together in Madrid, the society on Madrid streets, and then also then start 
investigating imagined themes of witches, of people in masks, of masquerade. And as he moves from the street scenes to the more imaginary scenes, he also begins adding captions to his drawings. Now, it seems to me that those drawings really introduce the elements that he would then develop in Los Caprichos, the idea of witchcraft, which is one of the first themes that he developed for Los Caprichos, the idea of men and women on the streets of Madrid is also an early theme of Los Caprichos. There's also a background to this because there's a context for this that one picks up by reading newspapers of the day where there are essays in the daily paper, which is is not really a newspaper. It's it's sort of a more like interesting essays on the day and commentaries oftentimes, and then lost and found and, and other ads. But they often begin with the word dream or sueño. And they narrate, you know, an author's dream that introduces a theme that Goya would pick up in a series of drawings that were preliminaries for the Caprichos that he labels sueños, sueño one, two, and up to, I think, sueño 27. And many of those were preliminary sketches for the etchings. So everything is opening up. I mean, he is, you know, exploring new themes. He exploring new medium. His drawings go from simple ink sketches to working with wash in very painterly, in very painterly ways. He is exploring new expressions in his figures. And then he is exploring caricature and, and fantasy. And he is also doing this as he is, has recuperated and is back to painting portraits of royalty. So his career at this, but you know, we, we see from this point on, you know, sort of dual tracks in his career that, you know, run parallel. And, and actually in Madrid, he was known for both. His caprichos were known. He was known for his caprichos. He was known for his portraits. He was known for his small painted scenes of, invent, of, of, of imagined or invented subjects. And they were found in collections of that. He was known for his religious paintings. So people, you know, were aware of, you know, the vast array of what Goya was doing in the 1790s. Before we get to the war and the war years, one note on Goya's deafness and, and this kind of decade between the late 1790s and the Peninsular War. You suggest in the book that one reason this was such a great decade for Goya, one reason that he had such freedom, and I don't mean painterly freedom, I mean the clock, <laughs> to, to make the work he made is that because of his deafness, he couldn't take on or hold the sort of royal appointments that the first court painter might otherwise be expected to have. Yes, indeed. And it's kind of interesting because one sometimes wonder if Goya was making excuses. Before his, before his illness, before 1793 and 1792, he had delivered you know, a, a group of professors at the Royal Academy, of, of which Goya was one, were asked to contribute, contribute their ideas on curricular reform. And they were given topics to suggest like discipline in the classroom and monthly prizes. And these reports were read in a session in October 1792. And Goya's, you know, which I discuss in the book, was is like the most anti-academic 
tirade that one could expect in the in an academy of any type. Too, he is saying, you know, get away, get rid of the monthly prizes, get rid of all these trivial things that you do, get rid of geometry, get rid of perspective. You know, painters will learn it. The purpose of the academy should just be to really encourage the invention and the progress of those who are have the true talent to become artists. And he also takes a side swipe on teachers who, with their great methods, have, has produced no great students. It, it, it's a perky letter. It's in the book. It, it, it is a perky letter. It's, it's low. I love that so much. You know, the, 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 you know, there are no rules in painting is not what you say to most academicians. So, you know, he stops attending sessions. We, he, he attends after he returns to Madrid, having become deaf. And soon he's no longer present at the meetings because clearly he couldn't understand what was going on. He also writes and says that he is no longer able to teach his monthly term because at this point he can't understand what the students are saying and he's a matter, he, he becomes a subject of their derision, so he can't do that. But nevertheless, when Bayeo dies in 1795, a position opens up and Goya applies to become director of painting. And he is elected to the position. So Goya still had his friends and backers. He, he wasn't standing out in the cold. And, and it is only in 1797 where he says, you know, when I thought I could take this on, I thought my ills would, be, would decrease. And in fact, they haven't. So I'm going to resign from my position as director of painting. And he was made honorary director unanimously. So, yeah, it sort of freed him from the academy. But at the same time, he also used the Academy as a showplace for his works. He participated, in fact, unlike most senior artists, he participated in the annual exhibitions at the Academy. Very small scale things, nothing to be compared with the exhibitions of the French Academy or, or the Salon, and which really served, I think, as a wonderful place for him to advertise his talents as a portraitist, which was generally what he showed at those exhibitions. In the 18 aughts, it was evident that Spain's economy was declining. So Carlos IV, seeing Napoleon get stronger and stronger in France, tried to tack toward France to become friendly with Napoleon. It might have bought him a year or two or three, but not much more. Because in 1808, the Peninsular War begins, it continues for six years, and goes very badly for Spain. How does Guaya spend the war years? Mainly in Madrid with two exceptions. In October 1808, he was invited to his hometown of Saragossa to paint the destruction caused by a siege that had been laid by French forces in the summer of 1808. The French forces had withdrawn, and so there, there was sort of a, a respite for the town. Goya went to paint. We don't have any works, sketches, anything that survives. We don't know what he saw. I mean, I, I cite in the book accounts, you know, of, of the city. It was in ruins, and there was an, a, a church tower that collapsed, you know, in the interim, and it, it was just in ruins. And undoubtedly, it impressed, you know, Goya deeply, because throughout his, his life, he identified himself as an Aragonese or from Aragon. Then he was back in Madrid by late 1808. He, with many other heads of household in Madrid, took the forced oath to allegiance to the French government. 
But then there is a document that says he is absent from Madrid in February 09. Now, there's also a document, the next one is from 1814, when people who worked at court had to call witnesses to show that they had been loyal to the Spanish monarchy during the French occupation. And one of those witnesses said he left only at one point to go to and got as far as a town in Avila in an attempt to reach a free country. So I'm wondering if in, it was in 1809 where he tried to get out of Madrid. He wouldn't be alone. There were laws promulgated that everybody who left their positions had to go back, you know, and they would be, you know, they could hold their positions. And, and people who had left their employment were to go back and, and reoccupy. And if they were found not having done that, there would be consequences. These were the laws of, of, the, of the French interim government. So I think it was probably in 1809. And then I think he probably remained in Madrid. So, you know, the idea that a lot of what we see in the etchings he did of the disasters of war, I things he witnessed, I tend to not think that was the case. In addition to the disasters of war print series, this is also when he paints 2nd of May, 3rd of May in, in 1814. Should we think of those as transitional works from the occupation years into the last phase of Goya's life? He has 14 years left to live after the war. We could also think of them as his sort of last horizon, as, you know, a history painter vying with the, you know, the grand works of, of the Royal Collection, you know, because as I report, and again in, in 2008 with the, the exhibition of uh, a major exhibition of Goya during the war years at the Prado, which marked the unveiling of those two paintings after they were fully conserved, there was evidence presented that those paintings, the origin of which we really didn't know, were actually probably in all likelihood, and I believe a, a royal commission, frames were being made for them in the royal palace during the summer of 1814, and this would also explain what I've also wondered about, because in 1830s, they were transferred to the Museum of the Prado from the Royal Collection. So they were works intended for the palace, intended to be seen by the palace. And, and what is really amazing, if, you know, on the one you have the, you know, a more Rubensian scene of horses and riders and, and fighters and, you know, a melee, and then you have that juxtaposed to the incredible image of the, the firing squad, you know, against a dark, dark sky, which has inspired, as we know, artists from Manet, Picasso, and many others. And you, when you think of those two images within the context of the palace, you'd see like the 2nd of May with the melee and horses and everything. Yes, that fits. But wow, the, the, the 3rd of May is a, a separate thing altogether. I think that's Again, when we talk about Goya, when we, we talk about Goya and you ask yourself, where did that come from? <laughs> you know, that is a question that I would ask when we look at the 2nd of May and we look at the 3rd of May. <laughs> two, two points about the, the, the two paintings. They are almost identical in, in size. They were literally within an inch of being the same size of each other. And ironically, they both kind of, you know, they pretty much initiate the next 150 years of French painting, <laughs> which is, you know, one of the great ironies in, in all of art history, I think, probably. Second of May, of course, gives us Delacroix. 
and 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 you just noted what what came out of out of the third of May. So he makes these paintings, which document he says using the word loosely, eighteen oh eight. These are these are paintings he made in eighteen fourteen. In eighteen sixteen, Goya's obligations or at least ties to the Spanish court and to Spanish officialdom kind of pretty much end. He keeps making, he keeps painting. He's got eight years left. How does his life change and how does he reorient his work? Okay, first of all, I would say his 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 career ends because the restored king, Ferdinand VII, Ferdinand VII, seems to have preferred, it was not a political vendetta against Goya. It was not because he didn't like Goya because he had served his parents. It was simply that he seems to prefer the more classical style of Vicente Lopez, who was the restored king's preferred portraitist. And a group of younger artists also trained in a more classical style. From 1816, he, he continued painting portraits. Again, the the Duchess of Asuna, who is still alive uh, and still kicking, commissions, it's probably she who commissions the portrait of her son, the 10th Duke of Asuna at that point. And Goya also, you know, in 1816, October 1816, publishes the magnificent etchings of the bullfight, the Tauromachia, which are just, you know, is technically perhaps his most superb etchings on large plates with effects of tone. And it's just it's just a lovely, lovely, lovely series, even if the series of the theme of the bullfight is not your favorite. It is not mine. Uh, and then, you know, then we have Sean Bermudez, who is friend, the art historian and print collector, who helps him get a commission to paint an altarpiece in Seville. And then we find him painting an absolutely wonderful and unsung portrait of an arch- architect at the Royal Academy, Jose Cuervo, which is in the Cleveland Museum of Art. If any of your listeners are there, take it. It is just a portrait that Goya clearly painted for appear. The, his handling of paint, his handling of the face is just absolutely lovely, wonderful. And then, you know, somewhere along the lines, he starts doing the etchings that exceed, far exceed Los Caprichos in fantasy, which are those etchings of the disparates, the things without reason, that are just plates that I think show what I was saying earlier when I said Goya was not Gilray. I think the disparates really show the triumph of the image over the word, because what Goya does is create confrontations. He creates scenes of homage among characters in in a scene, or he creates scenes of suspicion, or he creates, you know, he sort of unravels human emotions and 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 cast them large on these on these etched plates which again like the Tauromachia are large plates goya ends up in paris in 1824 at the advanced age of 78 does paris have any impact on the work he made in the last four years of his life i don't think so for a long time, you know, myself included, we thought, oh, 1824, the Salon, oh, you know, Massacre Kiosk, oh, did you see Ang? And he had gone to Paris uh, probably to meet up with his son's in-laws who were well-to-do merchants who had left Spain because of another interruption in government that I, I won't go into. 
And when Goya arrived in Paris, they were actually in England. When they came back in late August, Goya then is suddenly making preparations to go to Bordeaux with them. The salon opens in late August. Did Goya run there in his as he was packing his bags? I don't know. But, you know, when you look at the catalog of that salon and imagine, you know, the hundreds of works hung salon scale with, without the, you know, selection that art historians make of, oh, this is what you want to look at. You know, had Goya gone here, I think he would have been totally overwhelmed and totally baffled. And I think he would have left in short order. Uh, you know, the police record says, you know, he, he never leaves his apartment except, you know, to go wandering about the streets and looking at monuments. <laughs> so... I don't really think we can suggest that he looked at a lot of painting when he was in Paris. So the great accomplishment of the end of Goya's life is often said to be the black paintings. Do you, do you rank them as, as, as great as great? Oh, the black paintings are wonderful and remain extremely mysterious. The black paintings were Goya painted them on the walls of a country house that he bought on the outskirts of Madrid in 1819, but he probably didn't start working there until 1820 or so. He left them there, apparently, you know, and when he he probably leaves the house in 1823, a year before he goes or almost a year before he goes to Paris and leaves Spain. And. There is an inventory of those paintings that's made probably in the 1830s, and then there's there's absolutely no mention of those paintings until his grandson, you know, is trying to sell the house, and people refer to paintings uh, made by Goya that only he can understand. So there is a huge, huge mystery about these paintings. You know, investigations way back in 1984 showed that they had been significantly restored and overpainted. Early photographs of the paintings taken in the 1870s before they were removed from the walls show a much more subtle hand than some of the bravura brushstrokes that we see in them today. They were cut. They, you know, they were also cropped in some cases when they were removed from the walls also in the 1870s. So, and then you might add to that, well, these paintings had been on the wall from, what, 1823 for 30 years. What had happened in the meantime? You know, are all the figures that we see on those paintings by Goya? I mean, did someone come in and tidy them up even before they were removed from the walls? So, you know, to talk about the paintings as objects is I think incredibly, incredibly difficult because we really don't know what they look like. Talking about the paintings as concept, I think, takes us somewhere because a couple things. First of all, you, you have paintings that bring together strands of Goya's earlier career. You know, wall-sized paintings painted to fit spaces between doors and corners or on either side of a window or something. That takes us back to the tapestry cartoons that he designed for palaces when he had to paint this size because it goes between that window and that door kind of thing. So he's, he's thinking of interior decoration. And also in the tapestry cartoons, he created, with each room that he created, he created a theme, he created an environment, he created sort of an, you know, a theater that surrounded in the case of the tapestry cartoons, the prince and the princess, who apparently loved him because four months after he comes to the throne, the prince comes to the throne as Carlos IV, he makes Goya his court painter. 
So that's it. And that's what happens at Goya's country house. The other thing is, you know, he had painted scenes for the country house of the Duke and Duchess of Osuna. And there he had introduced witchcraft themes, themes that he brings back into these paintings. So in a way, he's sort of looking back on his career. On a way, it's a retrospective. On a way, too, I argue against the, uh, the image of Goya, the old, deaf, and depressed man, making these works. I think these works were exhilarating. I think they are a proclamation of liberation. And if I, you know what what a parallel that always comes to my mind is late Matisse and doing his cutouts, you know, just working on a scale that he never worked on before and, and you know, working his heart out on those things. So I think that they're they're incredibly liberating, wonderful compositions, but also, you know, just compositions that we we cannot know. Janice Tomlinson, thank you. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Artist Mark Bradford creates monumental works of abstract painting and collage. The exhibition Mark Bradford End Papers focuses on the key material and fundamental motif Bradford employed early in his career and has returned to periodically over the past two decades, End Papers. At the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth, the exhibition has been extended through January 10th. Information at themodern.org. Welcome back. Next up, Mary Beebe joins me to discuss landmarks, sculpture commissions for the Stewart Collection at the University of California, San Diego, which was just published by University of California Press. The Stewart Collection is one of the leading public collections of contemporary sculpture in the United States. The collection can be found all over the UCSD campus. If you've never taken a walk around and looked for it all, you have a treat ahead of you. Bibi is the director of the Stewart Collection and the author of Landmarks, which includes an essay by Miwon Kwan and interviews with Stewart Collection artists such as Mark Bradford, Doho Su, Barbara Kruger, and Bruce Nauman. Mary Bibi, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> in discussing the Stewart Collection in this new book from University of California Press, you describe it in a way one rarely sees a sculpture garden or sculpture, campus-wide sculpture project discussed. You describe the collection as, quote, a risky commitment to a continuous process, which is a great phrase. So what makes the Stewart Collection project a risky commitment to a continuous process? Well, just the fact that, you know, you're spending, you don't know the outcome for sure when you start, when you're commissioning work. You know, you think you do, but changes happen and money and things get more expensive. And, you know, you just have to respond as you go along because each project takes on its own pathway and its own kind of energy. And so you have to be able to go with that. And we've found that sometimes hitting blockades actually improves the work. So finding your way around the blockades can make something better. It's just an exercise in patience. It sometimes takes a long time. Not with everyone, but, you know, and often it does. And also, you know, nobody loves all public art. And so we, I also say that we don't try to please everyone all the time, or we wouldn't probably be doing a very good job. But my hope is, of course, that somebody 
that overall, that, and I used to say this in the beginning, because people said, oh, the sun god doesn't represent the university. I said, well, nothing is going to. So, so maybe the whole collection can, you know, maybe together a bunch of things can represent the university. And they're all sort of just like the rest of the university. We do research into what's going on right now, try to find the best. How and when did the Stewart Collection get started? 1981. James Stewart de Silva had the idea of doing this, and he put together an advisory committee. You know, he had been collecting kind of, but he got kind of disillusioned with galleries and auctions and decided he didn't really want to collect and fill up his house. He wanted to make art available he felt that art had really changed his life. And so he wanted to set forth that possibility. And he and his wife had moved from New York to live right adjacent to the university. So they walked and bicycled around here. And he sort of dawned on him that the university could use some art, some first-rate art. <laughs> he gave us startup money and formed this committee and got the university behind it, and then it went to the regents who approved the idea, and then we started up. I came in, 19, in October of 81. It wasn't clearly, I had said when they interviewed me that I didn't, I, I hadn't, I'd been asked to come interview, and so I liked my job in Portland, Oregon. I'd been there for almost 10 years running the Portland Center for the Visual Arts, we brought major contemporary artists um, to town and dancers and musicians and all kinds of things. And we had a great record of showing art of the 70s. So when I came, I said, or when I was being interviewed, I said, I don't see myself as a curator. I'm not trained as a curator. I don't want to be a curator. I see myself more as a catalyst. And I'm interested in working with contemporary art because some of the people involved at the very beginning thought, I think they thought Jim would have endless amounts of money. And Jim wasn't sure how much money he had, but it turns out he had less than he had thought or he hit financial reverses. So I didn't see myself as a jerk going out and buying things and placing them around. The Franklin Murphy Garden is beautiful. At UCLA? Yeah, at UCLA. But I, I didn't, there was not a particular place on campus that seemed to lend itself to that kind of a confined space. You know, we had worked in Portland with artists like Bob Irwin and Bruce Mailman and Carl Hondre even and Solowit. I saw myself as asking artists as working with artists, asking them to come and think about where they might do something, how to respond to the territory. Yeah, that's a really important element of of the whole Stewart Collection project. For listeners who haven't been to the University of California, San Diego campus in La Jolla, the situation is not like, the situation with art is not like what you would see at, say, I don't know, the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, where there's bronze plopped here and there often some very good bronze, it must be said, but it's just kind of dropped into, you know, the areas between buildings and at the entrances to buildings. Whereas the way 
your project has been, I think, planned is that it suggests that art belongs in places on the campus as much as, you know, a biology lab does. And that allowing artists, and correct me if I'm wrong here, allowing artists to be involved in the site selection process was fundamental to the project. Absolutely, because the campus is a good variety of territory. I mean, there are canyons, there's sort of corporate kind of landscaping, and then there's uh, the eucalyptus groves, and there's, so it's a huge variety. So it seemed, you know, like there were so many possibilities that people could respond to, that artists could respond to, that it seemed like worth pursuing something where you weren't necessarily in a museum frame of mind uh, when you experienced this, but you, they were part of everyday life. So with that in mind, let me jump in and raise a specific example and, and then ask you how the heck it got there. The first work <laughs> that comes to mind in the context of what we were just discussing is Doho Sue's Fallen Star from 2012, I think. We'll have an image of it. We'll have actually a bunch of images of it up on manpodcast.com. It's in a most unusual place. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's what, lot in the beginning, the, the landscape and the architectural people on campus wanted me to identify sites so that they could sort of preserve those sites. And I said, I, there's no way I can imagine all the sites that we want because artists will respond in different ways. And I don't want to plop things in front of buildings necessarily. I want to you know, have a different kind of relationship with the art and the campus. So I, I always refused to identify sites. When Doho Su came, well, you know, I'd been watching his work for a while, and I uh, thought, well, this could be interesting, especially his house things I really responded to. And the idea of home, of course, became, seemed really relevant to the campus. So he came and he had this, he had three ideas. One was for the garden that he eventually did, the Korean garden on the back of a truck. And he was proposing to just sort of embed that into a berm or something somewhere as if it had been driven all the way from Korea and then landed here, which was an interesting idea. But then he had this idea for a house which I think he, he thought no one would ever do, but to have a house crashed, crashed into an institutional real building. <laughs> so we experimented, or we proposed a couple of different places, one of the early buildings on ca- campus, and we tested that out, but it was, it's a building that's full of science labs, and so they didn't want, it was important to Doho that people go, be able to go into the house. So that would have meant people crawling all around there, you know, not literally crawling, but I mean, you know, invading in a way their spaces, their open labs. So we moved on from that building. And Doho said any building, just any, you know, the higher the better. We then proposed it for a new wing, or we didn't really propose, we talked about and inquired about a new wing that was being built on one of the buildings and the architects begged, begged us not to <laughs> put a house on their new wing. 
and it wasn't really that high anyway. And then we're up talking to the dean of engineering and his seven-story building at the top of that and looked out the windows. And there were these sort of parapets going out. And so when I say we, I mean Matthew, Gregoire, and myself, who've been working on this practically from the beginning. I got Matthew to move down from Portland, Oregon, and he's been a key player in helping to figure these things out because there was resistance at the university. I wasn't getting any real help because people thought, oh, God, this is just crazy. You know, students are going to rip things apart and burn them down and whatever. Anyway, so we saw these things from the top of the building or from the top story of the building. You could look out and see these things. And we went, whoa, you know, maybe the house could go there. And the dean of engineering got excited about this possibility. And so there was a lot of trepidation, needless to say. But, you know, part of my job, of course, is I can't, I can't put a house on a building if the dean of that building you know, doesn't want it. I can't go to the chancellor and say, I want to do this, but the dean doesn't want me to. He's going to side with the faculty or she is going to side with the faculty every time. So uh, luckily, the dean was excited about the possibility. We proceeded with planning it. And I had, it's called the Jacobs School of Engineering. So obviously we had to go to the Jacobs who are very much alive and make sure they were okay with it. So with their some trepidation from them, but there, go ahead. So anyway, we got permission, and, but there were weird things along the way. Like it turned out that the building was built with state money. So we had to get permission from the state. <laughs> well, nobody wanted to go. None of the political people on campus wanted to go and ask for permission. <laughs> for this strange request. So that took a while, but eventually we got through that. Doho, in the meantime, was so excited about the possibility. So as I say, he, he thought no one would ever do this. You know, I wanted to build the building, the house down in front of the building. So we did do that over the summer of 2011. And then in November of 2011, we craned it up. It was hard to build because the, the angles in this little house are so different. The walls and the, the floors, one is, is, is a rectangle. It's, I think it's 15 by 18 feet. So it's a small house. But building it, we needed it to build it on a, on a tilt so that, because it was important to do that you have the sensation when you go into it of being and having to get your balance of being in different a different kind of home and so you know the whole idea of people moving which is going on constantly forever and getting used to a new place students coming to campus and getting used to a new place and having to figure out you know where they are and everything that is involved with that anyway we marched along, and finally it happened. <laughs> in November, they they raised the house. They craned it up. It flew up. 
Yahweh said to me, oh, he said, Mary, Mary, my heart is coming out of my mouth. <laughs> but we had, you know, and there were tons of people watching. I sent out notices around the campus. We didn't know exactly what time because they kept, they came in early in the morning. The cranes came in and then the, what do they call it? The stabilizers came in and then they had to wait. You know, it had to be windless, no wind at all. And then they, but then they had to find the center of gravity. So they kept lifting up the house and putting it down and lifting it. And Doha and I were saying to each other, what's going on? Do these people know what they're doing? <laughs> it turns out that they were trying to assure or be sure about the center of gravity on this strange shaped thing. So but then they, they did and it, it went up and it was actually a brilliant production that the people who worked on all that were wonderful. And Doho was very excited about the whole thing and very wonderful about thanking everybody and saying he loved the fact that it was kind of a cohesive and co cooperative group that made it all happen. So that we've involved some changes and some, you know, adjustments and some challenges. <laughs> that particular work is as clear an example as anyone could hope to have of a risky commitment to a continuous process because process was so fundamental to getting it done. Another work that's a great example of process is a, a work that's coming soon, or maybe not so soon, but it's a, it's a, it's a project Anne Hamilton has, has developed what is that project and and how is it kind of a new direction for y'all? Well, it's really embedded in, in the growth of the campus. I've been talking to, to Anne for years about doing something and her work is involved with movement and all these other things that she just hadn't been able to come up with something that would work. And she had a big show at the La Jolla Museum, or the museum, of, now the Museum of Contemporary Art, San Diego. And that gave her some time to look around. But still, we, we couldn't come to anything. Then finally, with this new trolley station coming through the campus, and it was after she had that show at the Armory with the swings on a, something about a thread. The show, the show is called The Event of a Thread. And indeed, Anne Hamilton came on this podcast to discuss it. We'll have a link to that on the show page at manpodcast.com. Well, she's wonderful. And she's been incredibly patient and flexible in all the things that, you know, sometimes have to happen or have to be because we don't usually get involved in these huge construction things, but this involves the MTS, the Metropolitan Transit System or Authority or whatever it is and a new trolley coming through campus. And the part of this work, this proposal was swings underneath the trolley, which we thought would be just heavenly. The trolley company wouldn't let us do it and the university was afraid of the liability. So oh, the, the liability issues really came up that we, were, that we couldn't control. So for now, the swings are out. We hope that be, they'll be easy to put in any time. We tried to find alternatives to having them hang from under the trolley structure and just come straight down into that K-12 
canyon. But we tried to think of alternatives because they said we could put anything under it. We just couldn't touch the structure. Well, by the time you figure out enough framework to hang swings, the whole idea is that they were going to hang 75 feet down. And so this, anyway, we did a lot of swing testing and we had wonderful pictures of that. Actually, there's some in the back at the end of the book. There, there are of y'all swinging on the swings. Yeah, in the in structure slab, because that was the high bay. You know, they we could hang things from high up. And uh, we all had quite a good time swinging on the swings and even the, what do they call them, the liability guys on campus. Yeah, the lawyers or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Looked and said, oh, and they came and tried the swings and said, oh, this is much safer than we thought. But still, we didn't get the permission we needed. So as I say, they're on hold for now. Um, we haven't lost hope. But in the meantime, the other part of this project, her proposal, was this long path with a, what she calls a concordance with words and poetry and things from the history of the university to be read in the ground as you move across this very highly used pathway that goes from the trolley station into the campus. So it's a kind of front door or important entrance to the campus. And it's 26 feet wide most of the way. And so we've been figuring out how to do this for quite some time. In fact, we have so many Zoom meetings over it over the years. So, but it's coming along. It is actually coming along. And everybody wants it to happen. The chancellor wants it to happen. Chancellor's underwriting most of it, which is very nice. So we're trying, our deadline on that is when the trolley comes through, which is the end of 21, where we'll also open the Hamilton. And the, yeah, the pathways, you know, it's changed sizes and it's changed paths a little bit. And then the, it, the canyon was originally kind of a wild place, but now there are all these huge number of buildings going into it and around it. So it's changed from a kind of wild space to an urban, very much urban space. So Anne's, you know, had to adjust her thinking and, everything else. But she's working with the university archives and special collections to make it have a fair bit of relevance to the history of the university and to the library itself. Plenty appropriate for UC San Diego, which holds an important place in the history of conceptual art in both California and, and the United States. Mary Beebe, thanks very much. Oh, you're very welcome. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.